0: Good morning, Redemption. Bring down the house is a phrase we use when a dramatic performance leads to a thunderous applause. How was the U2 concert last night? Oh man, they brought down the house. Now, the phrase originated in the 1700s in the theater, actually as concerts would happen, or performances on stage, and the dramatic applause afterwards, maybe a standing ovation, and the the riotous noise, and the uh, thunderous clapping, and all there was concern over the integrity of the building. Like, is this structure about to come down on our heads? Like, they're bringing down the house. In the 1800s, the phrase became a standing joke in British comedy, and so If a comedian's joke fell flat, was met by silence, they would throw out the standard line, hey, don't make so much noise, you're gonna bring down the house. A dramatic performance that leads to a thunderous applause. Well, today, we're gonna be looking at a scene where Jesus brings down the house. We're in John 2, and this is a famous scene of Jesus' causing a ruckus in the temple. Jesus is turning over tables. He's driving out the money changers. He's letting loose the animals. And for some of us, this can be a confusing scene. Like, this is angry Jesus. This is prophetic fire Jesus. What is going on here? Why is Jesus so angry? What is he up to? What is he doing Well, we're going to see today that Jesus is not losing his cool. Rather, he is giving a prophetic sign of his coming death and resurrection and what it will accomplish for the world. The title for the message today is Bring Down the House. Would someone, if you would be so bold, say, Bring Down the House? Here we go. We are looking today at how Jesus brought down the house, the house of God so that you and I could be brought into the house of God and built up in him. Let's read in John 2. We're going to pick up in verse 13. John 2, verse 13, we read, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade the first thing we see here is that jesus is bringing an end to sacrifice it's bringing an end to sacrifice let me explain what I mean here. John, the very first thing he tells us is that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Saying so about the, the Passover is near. So John sets the scene going, this is around the time of Passover, he tells us. Last week, we saw how John likes to introduce stories at times with little clues, little details that give us a window to how this story locks into the bigger picture. So last week it began on the third day. There was a wedding, and that clued us in, hey, this is a resurrection narrative. But this week, he clues us in, it was near Passover. And Passover is the week that Jesus is killed later in John's gospel. And whenever we see allusions to Passover throughout the gospel of John, it is always in reference to Jesus's death and what he will accomplish through his death. And so our ears should be locked and attuned that whatever is about to happen in this scene It is tied to Jesus' crucifixion. And spoiler alert, Jesus' death is going to bring an end to sacrifice. Jesus is interrupting the sacrifices of the temple. This would have been the most obvious kind of, whoa, what are you doing, Jesus, to the people of his time and in his day, as to what was happening. Now, the temple was the house of God. It was the hot spot of God's presence, the center of the life of the nation and seen as the center of creation in the world. And one of the most significant things that happened at this temple was the sacrifices that were ongoing day in, day out, week in, week out. And especially around a time of the festival, such as Passover, where people were traveling from all over Israel and even all over the Mediterranean world to come and worship on pilgrimage and to celebrate this festival, the sacrifices are going up all through the day, the people bringing their animals to the priests, and Jesus is interrupting the system. He's breaking the flow. He's putting a kink in the hose, so to speak, of the sacrifices that are going up through the day. So the problem was not that there were money changers and livestock there per se. See, often I think sometimes we read this passage and we think, oh man, the problem is that they've got these money changers and livestock and they've crowded them into the, near the sanctuary and Jesus is essentially going, hey, get that bookstore out of the church lobby, right? Like stop selling stuff in this sacred place. But to do so is to misunderstand what's happening here because the money changers and the livestock were actually supposed to be there. If we go to Deuteronomy 14 in the Old Testament, where God is giving instructions for his tabernacle and then his temple, when his temple is established, we read this. God tells his people that if the way is too long for you, the way to the temple from where you live, if you've got to travel, you're on pilgrimage, you're coming a long ways, and the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, meaning your animals, your livestock, your wine, your different stuff you're bringing for the festival, because the place is too far away... Then you shall turn it into money, take those animals, wine, whatever, convert it into money and um, bring the money with you. Bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses for the temple and spend the money there for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So there are supposed to be animals and money changers in the temple the system got set up, so that's not the problem, then what is going on? I would suggest to you, Jesus is giving a symbolic act here, a prophetic act that is a sign of what is to come. This is common for the prophets in the Old Testament. Think of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel lays on his side for 430 days and cooks over dung, cooks his food over dung. How's that for America's greatest chef, right? Like, cooks his food over dung, but it's a prophetic sign that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, the people are going to be taken into captivity. Isaiah walks around the city naked for a while, and he's not trying to start a nudist colony, like that. He's showing a sign of how the people are going to be led away, stripped, and shamed into captivity. Isaiah, that was Isaiah, <laughs> Jeremiah Takes a clay jar and he goes outside Jerusalem's walls and he smashes the clay jar in front of everyone as a sign of Jerusalem itself that will be smashed to rubble. All of these pointed to the destruction of the temple, the crushing of Jerusalem, or the captivity of the people. And Jesus is a prophet in this tradition. Jesus is bringing a prophetic sign of what is to come. Jesus is like Banksy, right? Like he's doing dramatic public art here, and yet is art with a message. It is a theatrical performance that's sending a signal, that's sending a sign. So Jesus is not just losing his cool here. He's not just walking in one day and didn't sleep well and kind of flips out and throws a tantrum, right? That's not what's happening. I love, actually, how Jesus is depicted as very premeditated and deliberate in this action. It says he was making the whip, if you ever made a whip, it takes some time to make a whip, right? So i envision Jesus kind of sitting down, folding all the things and one rope over the other and his disciples kind of like, "Hey Jesus, what you plan to do there with that whip, Indiana?" You like, "What's what's the plan?" But Jesus is premeditated, it's deliberate. In the other Gospels, he's depicted as going into the temple the day before and scoping things out. It says he inspected the temple. It's almost like he's making his plan, and then he goes back out to sleep that night, and you can, visit Jesus, he, he's preparing for the plan. So this is not him losing his cool. This is a premeditated, deliberate action. Jesus is giving a sign of the temple's coming destruction his audience would have seen his actions here as an attack upon the temple. And to catch the significance, the temple in the day, it was like the White House and Wall Street and Times Square all rolled into one. It was the center of national life, and even more so the center of the nation's life with God as a people. To attack the temple was to attack the world. And in AD 70, Jesus's prediction would come true. What Jesus said would happen, his sign came true. Within a generation of his death, Rome would come in and demolish the temple to crush the rebellion that was happening there. This was actually a major theme in Jesus's ministry, his conflict with the temple leadership who had corrupted uh, the true purpose for which God had established his house in the beginning. His own did not receive him we read in the beginning of the Gospel of John chapter 1. I love this quote by a theologian, N.T. Wright, kind of describing Jesus' actions in the temple. He says this, he says, Jesus' dramatic action in the temple was an acted parable of judgment, of destruction. In casting out the traitors, he effected a brief symbolic break in the sacrificial system that formed the temple's main reason diator, or reason of reason for being, Jesus was claiming prophetic and messianic authority to pronounce judgment on the temple. So sometimes we talk about the scene as the cleansing of the temple, but it's better understood, actually, as uh, the destruction of the temple. Jesus is not there to clean up the temple. He's there to tear it down, right, symbolically. Jesus is not Marie Kondo kind of going, okay, these animals, do they spark joy? No, let's, let's get them out, right? Like, no, Jesus is more like the rock coming in as the demolition man to demolish, Right? Jesus is showing up at the temple, not with a bottle of Formula Formula 409 to wipe it down, but a sledgehammer to tear it down. Have you ever thought that God came to clean up your life and were shocked to find he first came to tear it down? Hmm. There's a song I love by an artist, Jason Isbell, a song called 24 Frames, and he sings, you thought God was an architect, now you know. He's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow when everything you built that's all for show goes up in flames in 24 frames. And the reality is this is often true in our lives, that we can think God was an, shows up just as an architect, and Isabel's going, sometimes he shows up as a demolition man, right? Like when there's some stuff we need to deal with and tear down. We want to use God as an Addition to the life of our home, right? and Jesus first comes to bring a demolition. So perhaps you thought, if I follow Jesus, he'll give me the perfect wife. And Jesus goes, actually, first, I've got to deal with your lust. Or you thought, if I follow Jesus, he'll, be the, he'll bring me the perfect husband. And Jesus goes, well, maybe, but first, I want to deal with the emotional reliance of someone else for your sense of self worth. Maybe you thought, man, if I just get my life together and God, I'm following you now, you're gonna give me that perfect job and I will have arrived. Jesus is like, first, gotta deal with, man, where you think your true sense of security comes from. Maybe you thought, I'm gonna follow Jesus and read the Bible and learn and it's gonna give me the perfect political ideology. And God's like laughing. (laughs) I'm gonna tear up all, confuse all your categories, right? Maybe you thought, man, I'm going to come to Jesus. Jesus, you're going to heal my medical condition. Maybe. Maybe he's also going first. There's some deep soul surgery that we got to do as well. Jesus is hardcore. He is a bull in a china shop who shows up to tear down your idols and crush down your resistance in order to get to your heart. And this happens because Jesus is good. It is because he is good that he cares more about your character than your comfort. He cares more about your heart than your happiness. He cares more about your sanctification than your success. And so Jesus comes to confront the impurity and the wickedness, the corruption in the temple of God and in the temple of our lives as his people because he cares about our holiness. as the people of God. All right, well, let's keep reading in verse uh, 18. So, so the Jews said to him, "What sign? What says the Jews talking about the Jewish leaders, uh, not people's whole right, but so the Jewish leaders are talking, and they say to him, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the true temple. We say, Jesus is the true temple. Temple leaders are going, hey, kind of give us a sign. You know, what what gives you the right, essentially, Jesus, to do this? And what is this a sign of? Like, what are you trying to say to us, Jesus, through these actions? You know, get, get explicit. You're given a parable. Give us explicit. And Jesus says, okay, well, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And as Jesus and the temple leaders are having this conversation, they are in the temple. Like, it is around them. Only the misunderstanding is the leaders think he's talking about the temple around them, and he's actually referring to the temple in front of them, the temple standing in front of them. Jesus is the true temple of God. To understand the significance, it's helpful to know a little bit about what the temple was. The temple was the hot spot of God's presence. It was the place where heaven and earth met, where God dwelled most intimately with his people at the center of their life together. The temple was seen or conceptualized as the center of all creation, holding all things together. The temple was the place where atonement took place, where the lambs were sacrificed to atone for and deal with sin and bring reconciliation ongoing with God. The temple was the place where mediation took place, where the high priest and the priesthood interceded with God on behalf of the temple, I mean, on behalf of the people. And the temple was seen as a place that brought life to the nations. Some use the imagery back then of a temple being like an umbilical cord, that God brought his life out from there to sustain the life of the world. The temple was seen as the center of cosmic order, holding the world together. Now, it's crazy. As we go back to John 1, verse 14, uh, we were there a few weeks ago. But John says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the word tabernacled or temple. John is saying, Jesus is the word of God become flesh and come to temple among us. And the message is that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the hot spot of God's presence. Jesus is the center of creation holding all of the universe together. Jesus is the place of atonement where the lamb has been sacrificed to cover sin and reconcile the world. Jesus is the place of mediation where the high priest who gathers us unto himself and represents us before God the Father. Jesus is the place that brings life to the nations and is out to reconcile and bring his healing power to all of creation. Jesus is the center of cosmic order, the one who is holding all things together in him and through him. Jesus is the true temple. And this means that Jesus is a firm foundation that you can build your life upon. Jesus is a firm foundation you can build your life upon. Okay, this raises the question, however, why does the temple need to be destroyed? Both Israel's temple, Jesus saying, hey, here's a sign that the temple's coming down, and also his own, the temple of his body. Why does Jesus need to be destroyed? Why does the temple need to be torn down? Well, two main reasons here. One is that the people have rebelled against God's ways. And the other is that they have rejected God's Savior. If we go back to Jeremiah 7, this is a passage that is quoted in uh, the other Gospels when Jesus does these actions in the temple. And we'll go back to Jeremiah 7. What's happening? Uh, this is the passage that says, Den of Robbers. If you've heard that phrase, a familiar phrase. Uh, so, what's happening in Jeremiah 7 is, God is confronting the people, Jeremiah is at the temple gates, and God's going, you guys are doing all this crazy stuff that is totally anti the way I want you to be, and then you're coming back in the temple and thinking you're safe. God says to his people, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations." Has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? God goes on, because of that, the temple's coming down. God's essentially going, you're going to live like that and then come back and stand in my house and think all's okay? You're going to live like that and come back and stand in church and think everything's okay just because you're in the, the building, Right? When he uses that phrase, den of robbers, associations with violence, it was a word used for bandits or brigands or revolutionaries who were committed to using violence to accomplish their means on others. This is why it's so important that when we see Jesus' actions in the temple, he's not just going, hey, get the bookstore out of the church lobby. It's so much more than that. He is confronting the hypocrisy and the wickedness in the people of God. God is essentially standing, saying, like, you're standing in my house, you're living under my roof, but you're not living by my ways. Like, your heart is not aligned with me and who I am. Jesus cares about the purity of his people. Think about what this means for us today. But Jesus cares about the purity of his people. He's zealous for the purity of his people. He wants to build us up on a firm foundation. And the reason that you can trust him with your demolition is because he's ultimately out to accomplish a renovation. Now, when you think about renovating a home, right, renovating a house, and how bad would it be if you hired the renovation firm? Right, and the contractors, the laborers, they show up, and they're looking around, they're like, hey, you know, there's a crack in that window over there. Let's just kind of scoot the potted plant over in front of it. You can't see, right? And like, oh, there's some mold underneath, you know, showing through the wall here. Why don't we just paint over it? They won't see. Right? And oh, man, we found some termites in the walls. We found some cracks in the foundation, but they won't know till after we get our paycheck, right? Now, if the renovation company did if they ignored the rot and the foundation and the structure and they, they didn't truly deal, they just superficially dealt with the stuff, we'd probably be happy at first, right? Because It would cost us less. The bill would be cheaper. you would be like, oh, man, well, that's less money out of my pocket. Man, these guys were cheaper than the other guys. But a few years later, when the thing is starting to crumble down upon your head, you'd be going, they were a bad construction company. Jesus is a good architect. He is a good contractor, and he knows what he is doing, and he cares about us as his people too much to just kind of superficially gloss over and pretend that the, other, the stuff isn't there that needs to get dealt with. Jesus comes, and he's going, I'm not just looking for the cheapest option here. I'm willing to pay the ultimate cost to renovate my people. Because Jesus cares about our purity versus people. Jesus is a firm foundation. Can somebody say firm foundation? Firm foundation. Jesus is a firm foundation that you can build your life upon. I love that song we sing sometimes, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, right? Like I'll build my life upon your love, Jesus. It is a firm foundation. It is something I can rely on. We can build our life upon Jesus as the firm foundation because he is the true temple for the world. He is a true temple for the world. And this provokes the question for us this morning, what are you building your life upon? Are you building your life upon kind of banking on your health? Because it's going to fade. If you're banking on your money, I got news it's going to run out. Right? Like if you are banking on your reputation, it can go up in the blink of an eye. But if you're building your life on Jesus, he is a firm foundation that you can build your life upon because he is our true temple. Okay, well, in this conversation back and forth, Jesus says, hey, tear down this temple, or rebuild it in three days. And they come back saying, uh, dude, 46 years. Herod's been renovating the te- Herod was doing a renovation of the temple all the time. It had been going on for 46 years. They're going, man, for 46 years, Herod's been renovating this temple. It's taken that long. Like, they started this renovation back when I was a little kid. You can imagine some of the leaders with the long beards and the gray hair just going like, man, they started this thing back when I was... It's a little kid running around in the neighborhood and you're going to rebuild this thing in three days? But the temple he had spoken of, John tells us, was his body. When Jesus says, tear down this temple, he's saying, bring down the house. Bring down this house, my body, and I'll build it back up again. For Jesus, this is not only what will happen to the temple, he's saying this is what will happen to me. I'm going down. The imagery that's used here in John 2 is used later in the crucifixion scene. And so here in this scene, Jesus is whipping the temple. But at the crucifixion, they will be whipping Jesus, the true temple. Here in John 2, we saw last week that Jesus is turning water into wine. The crucifixion, the spear piercing into his side will bring forth water and blood like wine to bring forth life to his people. John uses a string of words here, overturned, poured out, driven out. And these are Old Testament judgment words. When Here in this scene, Jesus is overturning the tables, but overturned is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for judgment, like God's threatened judgment on Nineveh or on the people. And at the crucifixion, Jesus will be overturned as the temple of his body is flipped like an omelet, is destroyed. Here it says, Jesus poured out the money changers' coins. That is an echo of Old Testament language for the wrath of God that was poured out in judgment when the sin and rebellion had become too bad. And at the crucifixion, Jesus will experience the wrath that was ours poured out upon him as he bears the cup of God's anger against our injustice and our wickedness and our evil on our behalf. Here it says, Jesus drove out the sacrificial animals, and that's exile language. The crucifixion, Jesus will be driven outside the temple, driven outside the city as the animal to be slaughtered, to atone for our sin. Jesus will be driven out like Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Like the Canaanites were driven out of the promised land, like Israel was ultimately driven out by Babylon into exile. Jesus will bear our exile and he will bear the curse on our behalf. He will be torn down in order that we might be rebuilt in him. The scene is giving us the gospel. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel. The crucifixion is a demolition. Jesus is giving us here this scene in John 2 in the temple. Jesus is giving us a dramatic performance of his own death. That later as the Roman soldiers lash him, they are tearing God's dwelling place down brick by brick. As the executioners hammer the nails into his flesh, they are swinging a sledgehammer through the sanctuary's walls. As the centurion thrusts his imperial spear into Jesus' side, this is the final blow that crashes into the most holy place. The curtain is torn, the glory departs. The Son of God lies dead. In the grave. The scene is a sign of the death of Jesus. And I want us to look back here at Jesus' framing to this in verse 17. It struck me as his disciple remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is zealous for God's house. Zeal for your house, this the saying of Jesus, will consume me. And that phrase could be translated also, passion for your house will tear me to pieces. It's a double entendre here. It's got a double meaning in John. On the one hand, it's going, Jesus is going, I am so passionate for your house. I'm so zealous for the purity of your people that it's eating me up inside. I, I want to do something about it because Jesus cares about the purity of his people so much. On the other hand, it's going, because Jesus is going, because I care so much about the purity of my people and your house, God, I will be devoured. I will be eaten up. I will be torn to pieces by those who oppose me. He's quoting Psalm 69.9 here, and it's a psalm of King David where King David is uh, zealous for the purity of his people, but he is being oppressed by the leaders of God's people. He is being hunted down and chased by, um, by the people who bear God's name. But if you read the whole context of the psalm, we find that their rejection of him as God's king will lead to God's rejection of them because he is the one who is truly standing zealous for the house of God. And similarly here, Jesus is the king who is persecuted and their rejection of him as God's king will ultimately lead to his rejection, God's rejection of them. Interestingly here, Jesus says, you know, it says, Zeal for your house, will consume me. If you go back and read psalm 69 it doesn't say it says seal for your house has consumed me past tense king david's looking back and going i was zealous passionate for you god and it led to me getting torn down but jesus here it's going it will consume me he's looking forward to with this as a prophetic sign of his own death so you could say that here in the scene jesus symbolically tears down their temple and say so will truly tear down his temple his body. And because of that, God will ultimately reject and tear down their temple in AD 70. But all this is ultimately so that you and I can re- rebuild in Jesus the true temple, for the life of the world. What does that mean for us today? Well, <laughs> so that Jesus cares about the purity, our purity as his people, Now, uh, we're back in the building, which I love. And for those of you who are watching online, but we're we're all, you know, like, uh, even if you're watching online, you're watching us here in the building, right? And I've loved, I've been so excited to be back in the building. I was really hoping and praying that this passage would not fall on our first week back. Uh, That would have been bad if, you know, week one, tear down this temple. (laughs) So at least we got a one-week break, right? Um, But the reality is that the end game, it feels so good to be back in the house of God together. And there is something about being gathered as God's people, as his family, of being face-to-face, of seeing one another, of hearing each other's voices, of worshiping God together. This is, I have been looking forward to this for six months. I don't know how many of you, man, I just felt like sobbing last week to actually be back together in one another's presence. But as we begin regathering and moving towards regathering here in this building, I believe there's an important message that we see here in this passage for us as God's people in this moment. And it is that God's goal is not just to get us in the building, it's to get God building us, right? That the goal is not just regathering, it's God regenerating us as his people, That the end game is not just us in God's house, it's God's house in us. That God is out to get his dwelling place in us. That we would be a people indwelt by the presence of the living God. And yes, in salvation, God has given us his spirit. As God's family, though, we want to press into living deeper and deeper into dependence on God, trust in Christ and walking in the spirit that he has given us. This house serves a bigger purpose, and it's us becoming the family of God. What's a house without a family inside, right? The purpose of this house is that we would be the family of God, pressing into life together and living into his ways. And Jesus cares about our purity as his people. I'm struck by this, Paul's words in Ephesians 2, where he talks about the fact that now you and I, we are the temple. We don't go to the temple. Jesus is the temple, and now in Christ, he is building us up like living stones as his temple. So Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, I want to read this to you, read this over you, where Paul says, so then you all, as a family of God, community, you all are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, the family of God. God has brought you in as the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He is the central foundational founding stone of this living temple. In whom the whole structure, the structure of our lives together as his people, animated by his spirit. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Here is God's goal is not just to get us into his house, it's to get his house into us, to make us his dwelling place. God wants to dwell inside of you and God wants to make us a family. I would encourage you, if you are not connected yet, maybe uh, you've just started coming or maybe you've been hanging around for a while, but I would encourage you, To move beyond just Sunday and press into life together. We've got our DNA class coming up. We've got redemption communities. We've got groups going on online. Come talk to me, talk to one of us if you're going, man, I want to get plugged in. I'm looking to get connected and plugged in. But it's important that we press into life together as God's family. And Jesus cares about your purity because he's zealous for the house of God. He wants us to not only be in God's house, but you think about like a Father or daddy's like, as long as you're under my roof, right? like, here's how you're gonna live. But there is a sense of going like living as the family of God under the roof of God and the house of God means aligning our lives with the ways of God. And we're not perfect, we're not gonna get there tomorrow, but we want our trajectory to be, God, we're aligning our lives with your kingdom. We're bending our knee to your authority. We're seeking to enter more fully into your heart for us as your people. We wanna build our life upon the foundation Jesus. So as the band kind of comes back up and we prepare to receive um, communion, the invitation is that we would come to Christ this morning, the true temple. Knowing that God is ultimately out for our renovation. Even if there's a demolition, it's just what's preceding his resurrection, his restoration. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, after three days, I'll rise again. And they repeat it. They're like, after three days? Oh. You know, but that phrase, three days, it's repeating. And if you are here last week, John started with the third day, and he ends John 2 here with this emphasis on the third day. Three days. John 2 ends where it begins. And I believe John is sending us a message, three days, three days, three days. Three days. That even though the temple went down, It's coming back up. That Jesus' crushing on Passover is what brings the new wine and his wedding on the third day. The temple ruins will be rebuilt as we saw last week Amos prophesied and foreshadowed. The, The temple ruins of Christ's body will be rebuilt on Mount Zion. And from this now, new wine can flow like rivers bringing life and abundance throughout the land. And we are invited this morning to receive that life that Christ has brought through the shedding and the giving of his own life. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, uh, this bread and this wine are for you. I'd invite you to take the bread. or the. If we're here, this is a sign of Christ's body demolished for you, broken down is the temple for you. Let's receive the bread together now i invite you to take the wine and this wine is a sign of christ's blood poured out for us given for us to bring us new wine new life to animate our life as his body as his people rebuilt in him we receive the wine If you need prayer this morning, I want to invite you. There are going to be people who would love to pray with you under the exit sign there in that, that hallway. And where it's a little quieter, you can get away from the, the noise in the room here. So there's anything that maybe Jesus has been calling you, man, something to confess, something that stumbling block, something that's getting in the way, a room in your house of your life, where you're just kind of going, man, this is something I need to push out because I want you to be Lord and to reign in this room, this area of my life. I would invite you to come forward for prayer on that. And for all of us, as we stand, I believe the invitation this morning is that for you and I, I would invite you to stand and that we together can bring down the house. That we can bring down the house. I wanna invite you this morning that we would erupt in praise. That we would bring forth thunderous applause for our King. I wanna invite you to sing loud this morning. I know that we like being back in the building and if you're watching online, I know that you like the apartment you're in, the house you're in, whatever. Uh, but I want us to sing so loud that it would threaten the <laughs> come crashing down upon us, right? That we would quake the earth with praise. Because Jesus, our King, is worth it. So let's worship him. He is holy. He is worthy. He has a firm foundation to build our lives upon. And we can bring down the house for him because he brought down the house for us. So let's worship him this morning.